Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you, and enjoy. Hi, I'm Dr. Carolyn Crandall. I'm based at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, and I'm going to talk about osteoporosis management. Today, we've got three learning objectives. First, to understand how to select candidates for osteoporosis pharmacotherapy. Secondly, to understand the risks and benefits of prescription osteoporosis medication. Third, to understand how to monitor patients with osteoporosis. Let's start with the first objective. How should we select candidates for osteoporosis pharmacotherapy? Well, guidelines are uniformly in agreement that we should be initiating pharmacologic treatment in people who've had hip or vertebral fractures. And when we say vertebral fractures, we even mean that the fractures may have been asymptomatic vertebral fractures, but those are nonetheless diagnostic of osteoporosis if they are minimum trauma fractures, and they qualify people for pharmacologic therapy. Also, the second major group that we are recommended to treat is people who have T-scores of less than or equal to negative 2.5 at the femoral neck, total hip, or lumbar spine by dual energy X-ray absorptiometry. And you would here go by the lowest T-score of those three sites to determine whether that person qualifies uh, as osteoporotic, that is having a T-score less than or equal to negative 2.5. So the next objective is to discuss what are the benefits of prescription osteoporosis medications. Well, hip fracture reduction is of course the key. And that is because hip fractures have the highest morbidity and mortality of all the fractures. And therefore, first-line medications are considered to be those that reduce the risk of hip fracture. Now, the FDA-approved medications that decrease the risk for hip fracture in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis are as follows. Alendronate, risedronate, zoledronic acid, and denosumab. These four drugs, once again, alendronate, risedronate, zoledronic acid, and denosumab. So accordingly, the American College of Physicians osteoporosis treatment guidelines would recommend the use of one of those four agents as a first-line therapy in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis in order to decrease their risk of hip fracture and vertebral fracture. Now, in men, the situation for underlying evidence is more shaky. In other words, hip fracture reduction is not yet demonstrated in men in randomized controlled trials. But nonetheless, the American College of Physicians guidelines recommend offering bisphosphonates to men with osteoporosis in order to reduce the risk for vertebral fracture. Vertebral fracture reduction has been demonstrated uh, in men 
in clinical trials of bisphosphonates. Now, overall, those medications reduce the risk of fracture by about 40%. That is, as an aggregate, alendronate, risedronate, zoledronic acid, and denosumab, those four first-line agents, will each reduce relative risk of fracture by about 40% or so. What are the risks of prescription osteoporosis medications? Well, almost all of them can cause mild upper GI symptoms. You can see hypercalcemia with teriparatide or abaloparatide. Venous thromboembolism and stroke can occur with raloxifene, although these are rare. And with denosumab in particular, there uh, is a pot potential for infection, including cellulitis, abdominal infections, urinary tract infections, ear infections, endocarditis, and serious infections requiring hospitalization. Now, these are rare, uh, but they are uh, listed on the labeling of the, uh, the FDA-approved uh, denosumab label. Now, I want to focus mostly on two serious but rare adverse effects. And these are class effects of both bisphosphonates and denosumab, and those are atypical femoral fractures, AFF, and osteonecrosis of the jaw, or ONJ. So let's talk about atypical femoral fractures, AFFs. These can occur with bisphosphonates or denosumab. The incidence is 3.2 to 50 cases per 100,000 person years. However, long-term use is linked with higher risk, up to about 100 per 100,000 person years. The key clinical take-home here is that if the person is complaining of aching groin or thigh pain, you should suspect AFFs and you should order an MRI. That's the test of choice, is an MRI. Keep in mind that these AFFs can occur with no trauma spontaneously or with minimum trauma and can even be bilateral. Osteonecrosis of the jaw, ONJ, is the second of those two rare adverse effects that can occur with bisphosphonates or with denosumab. The incidence of ONJ is between one in 10,000 and one in 100,000 persons per year. And that's actually a barely increased over background population risk. However, there's a higher incidence in oncology patients who are taking oncology doses of bisphosphonate or denosumab. The risk is reduced by good oral hygiene and that's a key aspect of prevention, is to maintain good oral hygiene um, and uh, get your routine dental cleaning and other dental uh, procedures done um, as recommended by the dentist. Now, there is some key advice that's given by an international task force report, which I've listed in the reference section. And um, what they mention is that routine dental work, such as dental cleaning, fillings, or root canals, should be performed as usual and do not require stopping osteoporosis treatment. We should be advising patients to try to complete elective oral surgery before starting the bisphosphonate or denosumab. That's, of course, logical. But also remember that if patients have any one or more particular risk factors for ONJ, then they should stop the bisphosphonate or denosumab 
and avoid restarting it until mucosal healing occurs, which typically takes one to two months. So what are those risk factors for ONJ? They include periodontal disease, denture use, tobacco use, anti-angiogenic agents. In the interim, in those patients with high risk for ONJ who've discontinued temporarily their bisphosphonate or denosumab, you could consider temporarily instituting teriparatide in the interim if it's not contraindicated in those people who have particularly high fracture risk. Now, this report that I mentioned of the International Task Force is an excellent resource. It even includes patient resources that I hand out all the time to my own patients and to my colleagues with concerns. Now, romosozumab is a new medication that I just want to touch on. Stroke and MI can occur with it, uh, and uh, the mechanism of action of this new drug is that it's a sclerostin inhibitor. Oh, it's not a first-line agent, so the time when it might be used, and this is what's listed on the labeling, is that you would consider it if someone has a history of osteoporotic fracture or multiple risk factors for fracture, or patients who have failed or are intolerant to other available therapy. And just remember that there is that black box warning for romosozumab regarding risk of stroke and MI in the prior year. Um, also, uh, the lifetime duration of use of romosozumab is limited to 12 monthly doses. So that's good to keep in mind. It would not be considered a first-line agent. Um, the same situation or similar situation is with teriparatide and abaloperatide um, because they have not been demonstrated to reduce hip fracture risk. Um, they would uh, not be considered first-line therapy, as I alluded to above. That's why they are not uh, one of the four drugs that are first-line uh, designation by the American College of Physicians Treatment Guidelines. Um, the approval of abaloperatide uh, was really based on um, uh, a randomized controlled trial that enrolled people with T-scores less than or equal to negative 2.5 plus prior fractures. So this is not just um, the uh, run-of-the-mill um, osteoporosis situation just by bone density being below negative 2.5, but rather uh, people in this trial of abaloperatide um, really already were quite high risk because they already had fractures. Next question, how should we monitor patients using prescription osteoporosis medication? Well, frequent monitoring of bone mineral density is not an appropriate substitute for asking open-ended, non-judgmental questions regarding whether the patients are having any challenges or difficulties taking the medications properly. Also, there's no evidence from randomized controlled trials regarding how often to monitor BMD during osteoporosis treatment. We only have post hoc evidence from clinical trials, but no randomized trials that were designed to detect how often we should be monitoring during treatment. Now, that post hoc evidence from clinical trials is interesting. It shows that women who are treated with anti-resorptive treatments like bisphosphonates and raloxifene or teriparatide benefited from reduced fractures with treatment even if BMD decreased or didn't change during treatment. Why is that? Well, it's likely because these medications are working to preserve 
bone strength. And you don't see bone strength on a bone density scan. You're only seeing bone density changes, but not the microarchitectural improvements that may be occurring with these medications. There's another tricky aspect to keep in mind besides that issue, where you, we have no good clinical way now of monitoring bone strength during medication use that's readily clinically available yet. And that other issue is this. Primary care physicians really may not be aware that changes in bone density of less than 3 to 6% at the hip and 2 to 4% at the lumbar spine from test to test may be solely due to the precision error of the test itself. Well, that has a lot of implications, doesn't it? It means we have to stick with the same machine and we have to look on every report to make sure that it says, is that change, quote, significant, unquote, from the last scan? And we need to tell patients about the precision error. I can't overemphasize that enough. How many of us have had patients come in with a bone density report and grinning from ear to ear saying, hey, look, my exercise and my calcium and vitamin D have caused my bone density to increase by two or three percent. It's great. It's working. And we have to, as responsible clinicians, very gently say to the patient, it's wonderful that you're doing all of these things. The only challenge here, I'm afraid, is that we can't really know that this increase in bone density of 2 or 3% is a real biological change. And we have to remember that each machine has its own measurement error. And then we have to sit down and go over that carefully with the patients. Um, we owe them that uh, educational experience so that they can really understand you could see that if we misinterpret that or we ignore that issue of precision error, we could make wrong decisions about either initiating or stopping therapy. Um, so this is important for us to be aware of. We need to stick with the same machine. And if you stick with the same machine, you need to make sure that they mention on the report itself whether this is a significant change on their particular machine and then explain to those patients about precision error. Now, because of that information that I mentioned to you, that lack of randomized controlled trials regarding how often to monitor BMD during osteoporosis treatment, and because women who have decreases in BMD during therapy could even still have reduced fracture risk. Because of that, the American College of Physicians Treatment Guideline recommends against bone density monitoring during the five-year pharmacologic treatment period for osteoporosis in women. Well, the next question is, what is the optimal duration of osteoporosis drug treatment? The American College of Physicians guidelines recommend that clinicians treat osteoporotic women with pharmacologic therapy for five years. However, importantly, the guidelines emphasize that the appropriate duration of treatment is uncertain, and high-risk patients may benefit from more than five years of treatment. For example, we have post hoc analyses from a randomized controlled trial, and those showed that patients treating with alendronate 
who had a pre-existing fracture or those with a BMDT score that remained less than or equal to negative 2.5 after the five years of initial therapy may benefit from continued treatment for 10 years total treatment because these patients experienced a decreased incidence of new clinical vertebral fracture. So many expert clinicians think about those two risk groups from that study, namely the ones who had pre-existing fractures or the ones whose BMDT scores remained lousy, less than or equal to negative 2.5 after those five years of initial therapy. And if after five years of therapy, the patients have those, one of those two risk factors, then they may benefit from a total of 10 years of treatment instead of just stopping at five years. Now, once again, we have to emphasize that those are post hoc analyses. Those are not from a randomized controlled trial that was designed to compare five versus 10 years of therapy. And so for that reason, the American College of Physicians was not able to conclude that five years is the optimal duration. They recommend five years, but they say that the appropriate duration of treatment is uncertain, and certain high-risk patients may benefit from more than five years of treatment. Now, we should discuss a recently emerging issue that has been cropping up and that is a term that's called denosumab rebound fractures. So the sentinel trial for denosumab, called the Freedom Trial, had a recent report published. In that report, here's what they said. Participants received two or more doses of denosumab or placebo every six months, and then they discontinued that treatment and they stayed in the study being monitored for seven or more months after the last dose. And they found during this monitoring period, after discontinuation, they found that vertebral fracture rates increased from 1.2 per 100,000 participant years during the on-treatment period to 7.1 per 100 participant years after discontinuation which is similar to patients who actually received and then discontinued placebo. Moreover, a majority, 61% of them, who sustained a vertebral fracture after discontinuing denosumab had multiple vertebral fractures. Therefore, patients who discontinued denosumab should rapidly transition to an alternative antiresorptive treatment, typically a bisphosphonate. Now, the authors of that study suggested that after discontinuation of denosumab, people should transition to an alternative antiresorptive, typically a bisphosphonate. But some osteoporosis experts like to make an analogy and say that osteoporosis is like hypertension. It's a chronic disease. We can't cure it. And people with hypertension take medication permanently, long term. And therefore, they sometimes suggest that denosumab should just be continued permanently. And that way, we could avoid rebound fractures. Now, I have two concerns with that approach. And this is a highly controversial area. The first concern is that we don't have safety information about long-term use of denosumab. 
And secondly, that atypical femoral fractures, as I mentioned to you previously, are duration dependent, meaning the longer you use treatment, such as denosumab, the more we expect a higher uh, number of atypical femoral fractures to happen because of this duration dependence. So I myself uh, am of the belief that denosumab should not be permanently used. Uh, and I tend to begin with a bisphosphonate uh, before denosumab, even though they are both, strictly speaking, first-line agents, and they both reduce the risk of hip fracture. I should also point out that ibandronate is the only bisphosphonate that has not been demonstrated to reduce hip fracture risk. So that is not one of the four first-line agents designated by the American College of Physicians guidelines. So let's summarize. We should treat postmenopausal women aged 50 years and older, as well as men 50 years and older, who have bone density T-scores of less than or equal to negative 2.5 on DEXA testing. We should also treat if the patient has had a hip or vertebral fracture. Please don't ignore incidentally detected vertebral fractures because those people are, by definition, osteoporotic, regardless of their bone density. Don't be fooled. An incidentally detected radiologic vertebral fracture is diagnostic of osteoporosis and those patients should be offered treatment. To decrease the risk of hip fracture in women, we should use one of the four first-line agents. Those are alendronate, risedronate, zoledronic acid, or denosumab. And don't forget this issue of rebound fractures with denosumab discontinuation. You should be replacing the denosumab with another antiresorptive, typically a bisphosphonate, after you discontinue denosumab. To reduce vertebral fractures in men with osteoporosis, use bisphosphonates. In terms of treatment duration, after five years of oral bisphosphonates or three years of IV bisphosphonate, namely zoledronic acid, we're recommended to recheck the BMD and reassess treatment duration and the patient's clinical situation at that time. Are they continuing use of high-risk medications such as prednisone or chemotherapy? Do they have cancer or other strong risk factors? Uh, for fracture because that may modify our decision, influence our decision as to whether we should discontinue treatment or not after the initial five years of oral therapy or three years of IV bisphosphonates. I really would beg you to join me in uh, making a difference in this because after hip fracture, we do a dismal job of addressing osteoporosis. After hip fracture, only 40% of people will fully regain their pre-fracture level of independence. Only one in three people are treated within 12 months of discharge after a hip fracture. That 20 to 30% of people die within a year after their hip fracture. So please do identify and treat osteoporosis and prioritize secondary fracture prevention. I appreciate your attention. Thanks for listening. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. 
Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.